Well, greetings, everyone. Uh, thanks for pressing click and tuning in to this sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I hope and pray that you are challenged and encouraged in your relationship with God, especially during these, well, quite frankly, these uncertain times. Um, it seems to me that in times of uncertainty and fear, when God, it's when God does a massive work in the heart, right? So during this COVID-19 crisis, I want you to pay attention. I'm urging you to pay attention to your heart during this time. This sermon series, which just titled The Christian Life, is meant to explore just the foundations of the Christian faith. It's meant to, to, to prod you a little bit, right? It's meant to prod you to consider what God is doing in your heart. Uh, last week, we saw the importance of having faith instead of fear. So if you were unable to watch that sermon, I encourage you to do that. But it's, it's basically about you just having faith in the midst of this context, in the midst of fear and uncertainty. If you are a person who is fearful right now, God, I think, is challenging you just to fight your fear with faith. Trust that God is sovereign and He is, he is not only at work throughout the world, He is sovereign over it, but He's at work in your life. Today, uh, we're going to look at another aspect of the Christian life. Uh, we're going to see today um, how, how uh, you need to be able to put your life into proper perspective. Right? We, we can be so prone to drift in our thinking and, and we can have the wrong perspective about our own lives. Well, today, I want to put your life in the proper perspective. I think it'll help you um, as you think about COVID-19 and you think about the fears that exist and the uncertainty that exists. So what we're going to do, I'm going to read God's Word, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the message. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be going through verses 50 to 58. So I'm going to read and let's see what God wants to show us. This morning. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray briefly. 
Father, we thank you for your word, and it is your word that we want to instruct us this morning. And God, as we get into this message, may it be your word that holds sway. So for those who are listening and watching, by the power of your spirit, be at work and speak through your inerrant and good word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The question I'm going to pose as we look at this text is this. What does it mean to have victory? What does Paul mean when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, that God has given us victory through Jesus Christ? On an elementary level, to have victory is is basically to say, like, I'm not losing, right? Uh, An athlete understands to be victorious by, what, beating their opponent. To be victorious might invoke jubilation, excitement, and even peace. But more to the point, to be victorious means the absence of pain, perhaps not physical pain, but some type of internal pain. Like, losing is never fun. In a theological sense, being victorious means the absence of death. Death is the ultimate enemy to Christian victory. Because Christian victory, what is it? What does Christian victory promise? It promises eternal life. In the tug of war between death and life, we want to know what will win and why, right? Let me frame the tug of war between death and life with a, with a bit of biblical theology. There, there is a sense that we are currently living between two gardens, um, the Garden of Eden and a future garden city that we read about in Revelation 22. I'll tell you the significance of the Garden of Eden right now, and then at the end of the sermon, we will look at this future garden city in Revelation 22. In Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, so we're going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we read about God's good, perfect, and unadulterated creation. The crown of God's creation, of course, is humanity. Why? Because all men and women have been created in God's image. Within God's good and perfect creation is this tree of life that we read about. Uh, We read about it in verses 8 and 9 of Genesis 2. Let me just read these particular verses for you. And the Lord God planted in the garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And there was another tree there as well, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So in the garden, Adam and Eve were not dependent on the tree necessarily for life, but the tree symbolized the right relationship that we have with the Creator, that Adam and Eve had with their Creator. Of course, the name of the tree is also making a point. When a person is in a right relationship with God, there is no death. Death being the antagonist to life. And many of you know, Um, If you've read into chapter 3 of Genesis, you know what happens when you turn the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Adam and Eve did not trust God. They, uh, They sinned by taking and eating what God had forbidden. The right relationship with God had been broken and like sin entered the world. 
with sin also came death. Since sin entered the world, death has like been on this rampage. When sin and death entered the world, so did humanity's proclivities to defeat death. Death became the enemy, and the question became, how do we defeat the enemy? Consider these facts. In 1900, the average age of death was 31. In 1950, the average age of death was 48. Today, the average age of death is around 72, perhaps a little bit higher. If the data is accurate, if this data is accurate, then I have outlived um, the age of death 120 years ago. With the increase of medicine and healthcare, people are simply just living longer. Gyms are packed with people trying to extend their life through exercise. Like just go to the gym and just people everywhere. Maybe not right now, but when things are generally normal. Uh, consider health, the health food industry with this rise of organic, non-GMO everywhere, right? I joke with Sharice all the time that she's going to keep me alive an extra 10 minutes with organic food. Now, but here's the deal. Medicine, exercise, and healthy food are fine to pursue, right? I have no hang up there. I like going to the gym. We eat generally some healthy food. But ultimately, they do not keep you from death. Science has not found the fountain of youth. Science has not found its own version of the tree of life. How do I know? Because all people die. There's this often used saying that there are two things that are guaranteed in life, right? Taxes and death. But what if I told you there is a way to defeat death. What if you walk down the streets of uh, Des Moines in a, in a normal context, right? And you'd ask somebody just a simple question. If there is a way to defeat death, would you do that? Would you, would you put your energy into that? Here is where the Christian message can provide hope to a world that is stumbling all over itself trying to find the remedy to death. The world is trying to find ways to beat death. The Christian message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to defeat death. It's fascinating to me that with the advancement of science and health, It is still the tried and true message of Christianity that provides the answer to one of life's most pressing questions. Now let's see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58. Let's see what it means for Christians to live this victorious life, even right now in this COVID-19 crisis. Let's see what it looks like for death to be defeated. So with some of that biblical theology laid down, let's narrow in on 1 Corinthians 15. In this chapter, we see that all of 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection of the dead. You just start and just work through the entire chapter. That's what it's about. It's about what it takes for a person to find victory over death. This chapter 
is the most in, um, the most in-depth discussion of body bodily resurrection in the entire Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 forces us to make sense of like our present life and our present circumstances by understanding our future. Uh, we call this eschatology. Uh, don't worry if you're not familiar with the term, but here's the bottom line. Let me just try to illustrate with, with an example. Uh, let's say uh, you decided to write a story about your life from the point you were born, from the moment you were born to your present day, right? Basically, you're writing a, an autobiography. In your autobiography, you tell of your struggles, your joys, you tell about the unexpected, perhaps you can talk about your hobbies, uh, things that, um, about your family, your family background, basically, uh, whatever it is about your life uh, that you want to convey, you're just at liberty to write that out. When you come to the present day, though, this is the question that I have. In your autobiography, when you come to the present day, how do you proceed how will your story end? Here's how this chapter and the passage we're focusing on this morning informs a Christian's ending. It informs your autobiography. If Jesus will come back while you are alive, let's just say right now the Lord came back, right? It says in this passage, you will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, right? Verse 52. Jesus comes back, there's change, transformation. Or, if Jesus doesn't come back, you will die, be buried in the ground, your soul goes to be with Jesus, and eventually you'll have a bodily resurrection. You'll be transformed and with your, and with your Savior. Transformation, bodily resurrection, and you're with Jesus. Either way, just as Jesus defeated death, you too, Christian, will ultimately defeat death. Therefore, your autobiography ends with victory. It, it ends with hope. Now, here's how this chapter and the passage we're focusing on this morning informs a non-Christian's ending. If you're not a Christian and you're watching, Here's how your autobiography will end. There will be death. And with death, total and complete separation from the living God. Now you might be asking yourself or talking to yourself, hey, would you say that on a Sunday morning when you don't have a camera to hide behind? Absolutely. 100%. Death will have its way. For the unbeliever, there are no more second chances to win. In the tug of war between life and death, death will have its way with you. That's why this chapter and this passage is important. I mean, I don't want to make this all about my um, babbling thoughts. So let's look closer at God's word and see what life is like in between these two gardens as we look forward to the next garden. Let's see if what I've said so far about life and death squares with Holy Scripture. In verse 50, Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? We've, we read about the kingdom of God uh, throughout the Gospels. So if you read the Gospels, you're going to run into that language. Uh, you'll run into that language also throughout the book of Acts. So Redemption Hill Church, uh, you know as we've been going through the book of Acts, 
uh, 20 to 25 sermons into it, we are talking about the kingdom of God a lot. Um, the kingdom of God also means uh, some, a kingdom to come. So it's an already, not yet. Here it means the latter in verse 50. And verses 50 to 54 is telling you that your efforts, your perishable accomplishments, everything you have achieved will not allow you to inherit the kingdom of God. Your material efforts, as it were, will not allow you to inherit the spiritual. Anything subject to final death cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We see from this passage, there's this contrast being set up. Uh, there's this, this world uh, opposed to that world. The contrast is, to, is meant to provoke your thinking. It forces you to ask the question, what world am I living for? You can ask that question right now as you consider all, all the effects of COVID-19. What world are you living for? Are you living for this perishable, immortal world which is stumbling toward death, right? Or are you living for the imperishable and the immortal world where there is life? Here's uh, Augustine's take on this passage. Uh, the 4th, 5th century theologian said this about a future kingdom. There will then be such a common accord between flesh and spirit. And he's saying that because right now, the flesh and spirit can be fighting each other. But in that day, there'll be such common accord between the flesh and the spirit, the spirit quickening the servant flesh without any need of sustenance from it. There will be no further conflict within ourselves. And just as there will be no more external enemies to bear with, so neither shall we have to bear with ourselves as enemies within. In the other world, there will no longer be death and sin. It is this other world Christians must live presently for. For such a common accord between flesh and spirit to exist, the enemy of life, it needs to be dealt with, right? Sin, which leads to death. That needs to be dealt with for this accord that Augustine is talking about, what we read here in the scriptures. This, this accord, there, there must, that enemy against this accord must be dealt with. In verses 54 to 56, the problem of sin and the solution of sin now come into greater focus, right? If this, if this question of what world are you living for is at hand now, how do we move toward a solution? We see what is the stumbling block to obtaining this kind of ultimate victory. But we also see who has the power over sin, thus able to claim final victory over sin. Here's a thought I had while pondering these verses. You will never know the cost of victory if you do not know what enslaves you, if you do not know what keeps you from victory, right? I mean, just read verses 54 to 56. Death is swallowed up in victory, right? O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, it says, and the power of sin is the law. It says, in verse 56, that sin has an impact on our lives, hence the word sting, you know, simply like a bee sting. 
It has an effect. You can feel it. We know it's there. And it is the law which helps reveal the sin. Meaning, if I, if I boiled it down and said, you need to perfectly obey the Ten Commandments, not, not all 600 plus, but just the ten, you need to obey the Ten Commandments, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the casino and put my money on the commandments. I do not think that you or I are able to perfectly obey the commandments. Why? The commandments, the law, in part reveals the damage that has been done by sin, by Adam and Eve, right? And when sin, sin entered the world, Genesis 3. Now, you could be listening or watching, and you're just like, ah, oh, there's that word again, sin. S-I-N. It's an unpopular word to talk about these days. But why? I mean, it's clear from Holy Scripture that sin is a problem. It's the problem. It's become uncool to talk about sin in our 21st century evangelical American church context. People avoid the word sin like a fruitcake at Christmas. Maybe that's just me. Uh, the word sin is the elephant gift uh, that everyone wants to avoid. Instead of using the word sin, we get substitutes like struggles, failure, and trials, right? What I'm getting at is that the word sin and having a theology of sin is unpopular, become offensive, and it's become unpopular and offensive because people's feelings might, you know, might be getting hurt or whatever. Yet the Bible says that all have sinned against God. You know, you just go to Romans 3.23, right? And, but here's the deal. If you do not have a category for sin, then you will not know what it means to achieve victory over sin. In other words, the way to be victorious is to face your enemy. Let me try to explain. The word victorious or victory conjures up thoughts, at least in my mind, of, of one army fighting another army in battle, right? Uh, like May, on May 8th, right, we celebrate V-Day. The V in V-Day stands for, of course, victory. On May 8th, many will remember the day when Allied forces defeated Nazi Germany with their um, unconditional surrender. Their victory took place because the Allied forces knew their enemy. Here's a personal example. I, I grew up with brothers, right? All, all boys in the house. Um, <laughs> my mom, how she managed all four boys, and uh, my dad, who knows. Um, I have a twin brother. I got two older brothers that are twins. And uh, without, I mean, it goes without saying, really, but I'll say it. Uh, it was a competitive household, right? We could be playing a card game, and it was super competitive. Maybe a little cheating. We'll not confirm or deny that. But it was it was competitive. Everyone wanted to win. Like there's this one game we used to play in our uh, family room. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, basically the couch was the end zone. It was a football game. And you had a runner with the ball, naturally. And in between the couch and the runner with the ball is the tackler. And the goal was to absolutely destroy the guy with the ball. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, obviously competitive, but here's one thing you realize. you When you play games like that, you realize strengths and weaknesses of your opponent. You begin to understand what it takes to be victorious by knowing your enemy. And here's the point. Sin is your enemy. 
It is an enemy that brings death. Do not skirt around sin. Do not deny the existence of sin in your life. Do not think everyone is basically like, quote, a good person, end quote. It is sin that kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and out of a perfect and right relationship with God. It is sin that continues to keep people from a right relationship with God. When I interact with folks, um, like say at the gas station or the coffee shop, uh, you've gotten this question before, hey, how you doing? And occasionally I, I respond with this little saying, I say, I'm better than I deserve. And it's interesting to to see and hear people's reactions. Some people are like, oh, that's great. And I've got reactions before where it's like, oh man, that, that, that's too bad. And here's the point. Sean Powers, because of sin, deserves death. But it is the reality of my sin that crystallizes and highlights the victory I have in Jesus Christ. The quote in verses 54 and 55 is this confluence of Isaiah 25.8 and Hosea 13.14. These verses begin to introduce for us this, this concept of victory in light of this battle between life and death, the perishable and the imperishable, the, uh, the mortal and immortality, right? They introduce this concept of victory. Victory in life will eventually overtake sin and death. There will be a day when the sting of sin, it'll, it'll be no more. Here is where all of this is leading. If you do not have a category for sin, then you do not have a category for the cross. If you do not have a category for sin, then you do not have a category for the resurrection. If you do not have a category for sin, you do not have a category for what it means to live a victorious life. So, let's now talk more about what it means to be victorious. Um, To help understand what it means for a Christian to have victory, I I, I need to step back again and explain what it means to be human. Um, Because the victory we read about in 1 Corinthians 15 will not make sense unless you understand uh, what makes you, you. Let's go back to Genesis one more time. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So, to be made in God's image, right? That verse I just read from Genesis 1. To be made in God's image means you are material and spiritual. You are not just made of molecules and atoms, but you have a spirit. Prior to the time sin entered the world, everything was good, right? The material was not corrupted and Adam and Eve were what? Blessed? And so there are two primary observations in light of what we read here in some of those Foundational realities, there are two points that I want to make from this particular passage that connect with 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58. First, since sin entered the world, humanity has been on a quest to find victory. And then second, unless a person understands that being made in God's image is material and spiritual, victory will always be elusive. You, watching and listening to this sermon, 
will not be able to comprehend victory unless you see yourself as more than material. You'll never understand victory unless you're able to grasp that particular reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Christian's future like material and bodily resurrection is because you are, in addition to being material, a spiritual being. If all you can get, if you, all of you can get your mind around is the material world, if that's all you can get, then death will have its victory over you. There's no hope for uh, the materialist in this world. I was thinking about how this passage was not, is not only revolutionary for us today, it was also very revolutionary in the century. In particular, Greeks who, and, 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 and with it, with, it, with Greek culture, religion as well, uh, believe the material body is like bad. Uh, Greeks looked forward to shedding the body, right? How do we get rid of this? How do we, how do we just become spiritual as it were? But what we read here today is very different. God redeems all things, body and soul, material and spiritual. Now, after all that, after those particular verses that we've kind of gone through, here is one of the most precious verses in all of Scripture in verse 57. But thanks be to God. <laughs> but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for not leaving you in your sin. Thanks be to God for his mercy over your life. Thanks be to God for the grace that he has extended upon your life. Thanks be to God for the love he constantly displays in your life. Thanks be to God that sin is no longer no longer has power over your life. Thanks be to God that you no longer need to fear death. Thanks be to God who gives you victory through Jesus Christ. You can wake up this morning and say, guess what? Thanks be to God. You can eat your lunch and say, thanks be to God. You can go to bed tonight and say, thanks be to God. While living between the Garden of Eden and uh, the future garden, Christian victory over sin and death is through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no ultimate victory. And thanks be to God that through Christ there is victory. The, the Greek word um, behind thanks in verse 57 is actually the word for grace, um, charis in the Greek. It can be translated as thanks, but grace gets to something uh, a little bit deeper. The Christian victory is because God has freely given His Son, Jesus. Christian, you do not need to wait for your resurrected, resurrected body to live a victorious life. At the cross, Christ atoned for your sin. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Christ has given you eternal life. The resurrection of Christ and, and your eventual resurrected body proves that victory will have its way over sin. And your thanksgiving is now like this grace-infused thanksgiving. So, 
here's the question I must ask in light of what we read in Holy Scripture. If you, Christian, have victory because of Christ, why do you live as if you're losing? Why do you live as if death has beaten you? Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying you're living your best life now. You need to live your best life now because that is not true. Your best life is to come. What I am saying is that you are to live with the hope and assurance that comes with knowing you are victorious because of Christ. With expectation, you long for the day when sin will be completely put down and this broken world will be restored. You can live your life assured that just as God has kept his promises, you know what, guess what? He will continue to keep his promises because we serve a faithful God. So what has gotten you down lately? COVID-19 making you feel a, a bit uneasy these days? Is life not going as you expected? Why is all this and more getting you down? A Christian with faith you can face today because of Christ, right? Christian with faith, you can overcome fear and anxiety because of Christ. Christian, you can live freely from fear and death because of Christ. Christian, you can live freely between these two gardens. Christian, you can live a victorious life. So, I want to end with what I promised at the beginning of this sermon by giving you and showing you a taste of what final victory looks like. Where's all this headed? In the final two chapters of the Bible, the book of Revelation, so I showed you the first two chapters of the Bible, and we get the last two chapters of the Bible. We receive a glimpse of the final, complete redemption and restoration of all things. All who have been justified before the holy and good judge of the universe will be a part of what we read in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21-22. Peace, perfection, and an unadulterated relationship with a holy God. We are moving toward a redeemed garden. So here it is in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1-5. to Let these verses bring you hope and assurance. Let these verses remind you of the victory you have in Christ. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the victory that we have now that is in Christ and the ultimate victory that is to come because of Christ. And I pray for anyone listening and watching, by the power of your Spirit, would you bring peace and comfort? Remind brothers and sisters in Christ of all that God has done in Christ. And for those listening who do not know you, by the power of your Spirit, would you draw them to yourself, extend grace and mercy, show them all that Christ is. We pray this in the only name we can pray, in Jesus' name, amen.